Most people associate Aaron Sorkin with brilliant shows like The West Wing and his Academy Award-winning script for Social Network, which was by far the best movie of that year and maybe the whole decade. But I first met Aaron Sorkin when he was a playwright. He had a play on Broadway called A Few Good Men, which was later made into a film starring Jack Nicholson. But at the time, he was completely obsessed with the theater, and that's where he began to do the rhythms and the kind of wordplay and brilliant writing that he became known for. Most recently, he's been a director. He directed Molly's Game, and now he's directed The Trial of the Chicago Seven, which is a fascinating movie that has enormous resonance for today. This is Aaron Sorkin. start the podcast because you have a busy life and you're a very important man. Okay, okay. So the way this the way this works is that it's five things and the first thing is a person in your life who's been remarkable or important or really mattered to you for one reason or another. Okay. It would have to be my father who passed away just a few years ago at 95. More than being a, a just a great dad, someone to look up to and someone to emulate. He has made his way in a big way, into many of the characters that I've written, like Bartlett on the West Wing, or William Kunstler in uh, in Chicago 7. Mm. Um, he was a man who kind of always had one foot in, in another century and one foot today. He was, a, he was an intellectual property lawyer uh, for Warner Brothers uh, his, his whole life, though he uh, until I wrote A Few Good Men, he wouldn't have been able to pick Tom Cruise out of a police lineup. But like I said, there was something quixotic about him that has influenced me a lot. Do you look alike? I, I'm never good at that. People have said that we do and that my mother and I look alike, but I, I'm never able to see that. And they say my daughter and I look alike and I'm not able to see that. Uh, and do you have anything of his that you keep in a... Uh, that you look at regularly that becomes sort of a part of him in your life on a daily basis? Yeah. Well, first of all, I have a, I, I have on my, uh, uh, the walls of my office, both at Warner brothers and here at home framed black and white photographs of writers. But there's also a framed black and white photograph of him. But what I also have is something that I didn't get. I got it from my mom, but not until after my father died. My father served and fought in world war II. When he turned 18, he enlisted because his parents, my grandparents, they, they'd been, like a lot of people's grandparents, they'd been chased here from Russia and found a home in America. And, you know, my dad felt he owed the country something. But like a lot of greatest generation people, like a lot of people who fought in World War II, never talked about it. You asked him a question, he would answer it. He, he wasn't secretive. But he was stoic about it. He also thought he was fighting a war that he thought he was fighting the war to end all wars, that he was fighting a war so that his children would never have to. But the thing that I got recently from my mom was a pin that designated that my father was in the counterintelligence corps. He was a spy. Wow. And I never knew that. Wow. Yeah. Are you, are you going to do more research into... Uh, I will. I, I'm not sure how successful I'll be in, in getting any information. 
the greatest source of information would have been him. But I, I am going to do more research into it. It's answered a couple of questions for me. Like the only story really I know of his service is that my, my father went to um, a high school in Brooklyn called Stuyvesant High School, which was a school for smart, poor kids. Right. Um, you had a test to get in. Uh, yes. Yeah. You got a test into it. And he went to that school and he and a couple of friends of his uh, who had gone to that school, after they enlisted, they were sent to Penn to learn Chinese, to take a crash course in Chinese. And I never understood why he needed to do that exactly to go fight the Nazis or go fight the Japanese. But now I understand there was more to it than that. Did he want you to become a lawyer? He was, he and my mom both very supportive, very nervous, but but very supportive of uh, what I was doing. You know that uh, my brother and sister are both lawyers. Right. But he was always very proud of me, proud of me when I was a kid, proud of me as an adult. He would, when A Few Good Men was on Broadway, it opened in 89 and closed in 91. And it, it, it played at the Music Box Theater on 45th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue. He'd take the train in from Westchester in the morning to go to work, get up, Grand Central Station. And instead of walking straight to Rockefeller Plaza, which is a pretty straight shoot, he would walk many blocks out of his way just so he could walk past the marquee of the play. That's so nice. I love that. That's so It good. is nice. And, and and I know he would have liked Chicago 7 a lot. And it's sad that he's not around for it. Did he ever talk to you about any periods in history like Chicago 7? Did he? Well, you know? I know that he was friends or friendly with Bill Kunstler. But I don't know any more about the circumstances than that. Because at the time that he told me that, I didn't really know who William Kunstler was. The name was familiar. I kind of had a sense that he was a famous lawyer. But when you're a kid, you're dopey and you don't ask the questions you should ask. Uh, you know, what you're asking is, can, can I come back an hour later than curfew? <laughs> Do you think you would make a good spy, Aaron? I think you'd make a good spy. Do I think I'd make a good spy? I don't think I'd do great under torture. Um, <laughs> Maybe you never know. <laughs> yeah. Also, Lynn, what makes you think I'm not a spy? <laughs> exactly. Okay, you're making assumptions, you know. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's why you make such a good spy. Yeah, uh, I've, I've, you know, I've binged The Crown several times now, and it seems like everyone's a spy. Yeah, I think you would make an excellent spy. Also, I think so too. Thanks. You're kind of a spy because you're always reporting on these worlds that we aren't aware of, and. You're telling us about them, whether we know about them or not. Oh, well, that's a nice way of looking at it. I appreciate it. So what's a place in your life that's had particular resonance? Well, I've been thinking about this. I knew I was going to have to answer that question. It's very tough. Um, very tough. Yeah. So I'm going to waffle uh, a little bit, okay? Because... While on the one hand, it's it's New York City. I mean, uh, the real answer is New York City. First of all, that, that's where I lived from zero to eight uh, years old. I lived in Manhattan before my family moved up to Scarsdale, a suburb about uh, 30, 40 minutes north in, in Westchester. And I went to uh, a lefty private school in Greenwich Village called the Little Red Schoolhouse, where unbeknownst to me, um, my classmates were the children 
many of them, of very famous people, but I didn't know who they were. So I didn't know until much later that after school, I had play dates with Bob Dylan's daughter at Bob Dylan's house. <laughs> uh, I just didn't know who Bob Dylan was. I didn't know I was going to school with, with Neil Simon's daughter. I went to school with the children of people who were blacklisted and the children of people who named names. So on like school nights, assembly nights, where we were singing something or doing a play, there'd be fistfights in the lobby. And then I came back to New York after college uh, to begin my life as a, as a struggling writer. I love New York. And I think that because New York, and not Los Angeles, but New York is, is where I spent my salad days. Uh, New York is where I struggled. That you're you're kind of part of this community of struggling, uh, unemployed writers, actors, directors, dancers, singers who were all waiting tables, or bartending somewhere, doing anything for minimum wage. I dressed up as a moose and passed out leaflets. I did all kinds of things. Just going through that part of your life in New York makes New York a very important part of your life. I love New York. It's, um, it's the world capital of uh, of theater. And that's a big reason why I find it a very, very romantic place. But here's where the waffling comes in. Okay. Because I think that Scarsdale had a big influence on me too. And the reason why I'm waffling is I, I was considering just not mentioning Scarsdale. Okay. <laughs> because it sounds like what I'm saying is that this very white, very snobbish place for upper middle class people had a tremendous influence on me. Well, it did. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I had a very nice childhood there. My parents moved there for the same reason everyone's parents moved there, for the public school system. Great high school. Great high school. I owe a lot to my teachers uh, at that school. I owe a lot to the, to the drama club, to the Scarsdale High School Drama Club, and my friends, all of whom were smarter than I am, just like the, the other members of my family. And oh, I, I, I mean, smarter in ways, measurably smarter. You know, doubtful, doubtful, scores, doubtful, 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 doubtful. Go ahead. You're very kind, but I think if we go to school together, you'd agree. <laughs> um, and so I, I just loved the, the sound of smart people arguing, whether it was my, my friends and me playing nickel dime quarter poker on a Friday night or sitting around the dinner table with my family where anyone who used one word when they could have used 10 just wasn't trying hard enough. Do you think that's where you got your amazing gift for rhythm? You have such a gift for rhythm in writing. I mean, I just, it's like music the way you write. Do you think you started to learn that just listening to those conversations? It's an incredibly nice thing to hear, and yes. Also, my parents started taking me to see plays starting from when I was very young. And oftentimes, I was too young to understand what was going on on stage. Like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf when I was nine? Uh, But I loved the sound of dialogue, and it sounded like music to me, these words being spoken by great actors and actresses crashing into each other. And I wanted to imitate that sound. And yes, dialogue is like music to me. It matters just as much what a line of dialogue sounds like as what it means. 
two questions. What was the first play you remember seeing? The first play I ever saw, I actually saw from backstage. One of, again, one of my classmates at, at Little Red was the, I was friends with the daughter, my brother friends with the son of Herschel Bernardi, a great actor from, Blacklist. started in the Yiddish theater, but then he did a, a lot, including he replaced Zero Mostel in the original production of Fiddler on the Roof. And on a Sunday, uh, there was some kind of play, play date with Hirsch Bernardi's kids, in the middle of which there was some sort of nanny emergency. And I, I can't remember the details, but the, the, the nanny or the babysitter, the only thing she could do with the kids was park them backstage at the Imperial Theater. And it was a Sunday afternoon during a matinee. Now, the other kids, Herschel Bernardi's kids, were used to this. And so they just kind of ran to his dressing room and started playing in there. And I remember standing there, I was probably five, just not understanding what I was looking at. I was watching someone in profile sing Miracle of Miracles to, I couldn't see the audience. I, I mean, I just didn't know what I was looking at, but I liked that place. The first thing I saw sitting in a seat watching it was Man of La Mancha. And I, I have a distinct memory, uh, and, and this is when I caught the bug, as they say. I have a distinct memory of, and we sat way high in the rear of the balcony. Those were the seats we could, uh, my parents could afford. And uh, just seeing the top of a bassoon sticking out of the orchestra pit, and just suddenly being aware, before I even knew what the word live really meant, just suddenly being aware that this was live and kind of feeling that electricity. And then, I don't know if you remember how Man of La Mancha begins. I've actually never seen it, I'm sorry to say. That really needs to be corrected. I know, um, I'm going to have to. I know all about it. It's one of those, I could tell you everything about it and the songs and everything, but I've literally never seen it. I'm just being painful. If you long. like, we can spend the rest of this. <laughs> I, can, I can perform it for you. Uh, if you want. Well, at least uh, the impossible dream, that's important. <laughs> okay. It begins with the world's scariest staircase descending down into a prison dungeon uh, where prisoners awaiting to be, awaiting execution from the Spanish Inquisition uh, are waiting. Now, I, obviously, I didn't know what the Spanish Inquisition was or anything, but you didn't have to tell me that whatever was going on here was scary. And uh, that was it. I was... Uh, you were gone. I was gone. And tell me where you were a bartender. I was a bartender in a lot of places. I A couple of hotel bars, a bar that used to be owned by Frank Sinatra. And on my third day, there was a very drunk patron and the owner of the place or the manager just started yelling me, are you going to throw him out of here? And <laughs> suddenly, like, I, I had bouncer duties. I, I was, <laughs> it, it wasn't really for me. Mostly, I bartended at Broadway theaters. Which is a where good you thing work, because you don't work that much. You don't have to do that much. It's just very intense, you right? You don't have to work during the first act, okay? And that is where I wrote A Few Good Men on Cocktail Napkins during the first act of La Cajafol. I was tending bar at the Palace Theater. 
And do they have and, limited drinks also? Like you, there's not like an endless, like people aren't going to come in and ask for some bizarre drink, right? They're not going to ask for a blender drink. They're not going to ask for a pina colada. Yes, you're mostly pouring white wine, making a gin and tonic, a vodka tonic, scotch on the rocks, or Coke, diet Coke, or selling them Twizzlers. And it was $22.50 plus tips uh, per performance, which was just enough to pay my share of the rent in the apartment that I shared with a bunch of people, to pay my phone bill, and and to buy... You could go into H&H Bagels, buy a dozen bagels and some like bologna or cream cheese, it wasn't that expensive and that would last you several days. Yeah. You know, I think that every city has inexpensive food, but that New York is the only city that has good expensive food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good inexpensive food, I should say. Yes, yes. You can get pizza. Oh, boy, can you ever. You can get pizza. You can get, if you go to go to uh, Grace Papaya, you can get the world's best hot dogs True. for uh, next to nothing at three in the morning. Exactly. Perfect. Did, so you wrote it on cocktail napkins. Do you have the napkins? I don't have the napkins. There was n- no indication that those napkins were going to be of any importance uh, at all. I would come home with my pockets stuffed with napkins, kind of spill them out onto uh, the, a desk, our desk, the desk, the one desk. My All my roommates and I had uh, gone in on what was then just called a Macintosh. It was 128K. Mm. There are greeting cards now that sing to you that have more memory than this computer. But I thought it was the greatest device in the world because it had a delete key. You didn't have to mess around with whiteout or that tape anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could cut and paste. You could move this speech from there to there. So that's how I wrote A Few Good Men. And you just toss the napkins? Just think what those napkins would they be in the Smithsonian. <laughs> Again, Lynn. Um, I'm serious. That's not I, I wasn't thinking at that point that this was going to be a Broadway play that would get turned into a Hollywood movie that would ignite a career. You know, I went, to opening night, I went to opening night of A Few Good Men. Did you really? Yeah. I went to opening night of A Few Good Men. It was a date. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I never knew that. <laughs> yeah, uh, cool. I loved it. So my goal was to was to be a professional writer, to earn a living as a writer, to be able to pay that rent and buy those bagels and those hot dogs with money that I made writing. And actually, the first money I ever made writing was for Playbill magazine. One of my many jobs was working as a um, uh, as a runner at the TKTS booth. Uh, in Times Square, the half price tickets booth, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, my job was to say, you know, next, please step up window five to answer any questions uh, they had. The questions were always, do you have any tickets for cats? Um, <laughs> but the other thing that I had to do was take a, a satchel of cash, okay, thousands and thousands of dollars in cash, take that to whatever theater box office I was told to go to. And in exchange, they would hand me the tickets that they were going to put on sale uh, for that day, the half price tickets they were going to put on sale. And there were a bunch of us doing this with red armbands that said TKTS. Why didn't any mugger 
catch wise to the fact that all these guys with T- or red TKTS armbands in Times Square were walking around with thousands of dollars in cash that they could just grab. I don't also, know. Why didn't you guys just take the top tickets? Why didn't we? You know, just take tickets for yourselves. Well, I think it's against the law. Okay. Probably. I think that's stealing. That whole thing, stealing thing. There's the stealing thing. Yeah. There's the whole stealing thing. Yeah. But that that sounds like a really perfect job for you. Like, that must have been fun. Uh, You know what? It was fun. Uh, It was fun. Even when it would get very, very cold. Uh, (laughs) It was fun. I enjoyed answering the questions. And you know what I really enjoyed? Same thing with bartending. I felt like I was in the theater. And this just goes back to my point. My, my that dream of of just being able to pay my bills writing that was not a modest goal. I don't need to tell you that. Uh, that was not a modest goal. Everything else that has come on top of that has been icing. Is obviously the wrong word. It's been amazing to me. It's it's just not what I ever imagined. I don't ever take that for granted. So the third thing would be a thing, meaning an inanimate object that has meaning for you, a photograph, a film, a television show, a book. It's it's a photograph. It's not a personal item as you might imagine. Uh, Okay. In fact, I've only ever seen this photograph once and it was 30 years ago. And I've never been able to track down the photograph again. And here's what the photograph is. It's a black and white photograph of the old Morosco Theater on Broadway in the 40s. That theater was torn down to make the Marriott Marquis Hotel. The old Morosco Theater, the doors are open. The signage out front tells us that this is a Wednesday matinee of Death of a Salesman. That's letting out right now. And what we see... Like I said, the doors of the theater are open. It's a sea of businessmen with their shoulders slumped and their head down, and they're heading to the bar across the street. What's remarkable about this photograph is, as you know, Wednesday matinees are commonly filled with retired people or students or people on vacation, people who don't have to be at work on a Wednesday afternoon. But Death of a Salesman had been open for four or five months and word had gotten out about this play. And these businessmen did not want their families to see them cry. Oh, my God. And I look at that picture and I see the power of the theater. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. Was that a play that particularly influenced you? That play, yeah. I've seen... Uh, several different productions of it, including Philip Seymour Hoffman's and Dustin Hoffman's. And I've read it many times. I've seen other productions of it too. I think I would cry at a high school production of it. And, you know, what's amazing about the play is, you know, you've heard me describe my father as quixotic and with a lot of great adjectives. I also watched Death of a Salesman. And like every other son of a father, I say, my God, my father. The Philip Seymour Hoffman version I saw three times. And it was the most devastating performance I can remember. They weren't playing. They weren't playing. Yeah. Phil 
Andrew Garfield, Michael Nichols, they weren't playing. That's Death of a Salesman's not going to get better than that. And I, for my, my money, everybody can have their own favorite American play of all time. I think that's the best American play of all time. What plays were you in? Because you were an actor briefly. <laughs> I thought when I was much, much younger, I thought that all I wanted to be was an actor. In fact, it wasn't until my last day of college that I ever wrote anything for pleasure. Until my last day of college, writing for me was a chore to be gotten through for a school assignment. What happened on the last day of college? Here's what happened. Syracuse University, it's the drama department, and one senior is elected at the beginning of the year to be what's called the student rep, which is kind of the liaison with the faculty. But the other job that you have is on the last day, there is a tremendous party to with the whole department to send off the seniors. That party is preceded by kind of a talent show, except it's sketches about the faculty. And I was informed in the morning of that day that it was my job to write those sketches. Uh, I, I just didn't know that. So I had to write like three sketches about the faculty. And at the party that came after, one of my favorite professors came up to me and said, you know, you could do this professionally uh, if you wanted. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I, you mean like throw parties for people? I'm, I'm going to New York to be an actor. But he was talking about writing. And anyway, that's what happened on my last day in college. Uh, I wrote three good sketches. So what was your best, in your estimation, as an actor, what was your best performance? And can you sing? I cannot, though I thought I could. And so I played the Ben Vereen role in Pippin. Okay. No, that's hard. Your reaction to that, I don't feel was supportive. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. So you I, could, could you do the Fosse moves? I, no, no of course not. <laughs> too but, bad we're not um, together because at this moment, Aaron, it's too bad we're not together because at this moment I'm attempting Fosse moves for you. Oh man, I wish I could see that. <laughs> I wish I could see that. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny uh, in the show. I was also Judas and Godspell and Schroeder and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Schroeder's the best part in a You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. You're darn right it is because of the book report, okay? Exactly. Yeah. It's and the part where Little John jumped to the rock from the sheriff of Nottingham's back, and then Robin and everyone jumped through the trees on a sudden surprise attack. Oh, my God. Yep. I just sang You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown on your podcast. That's it. My career is over. That was the end. Your career is starting. It's a whole new future for you. You've got that writing and directing thing, and now you can sing. Yes. Yeah. I'm thinking of doing a concert at the Carlisle. I'm there. I'm there. Awesome. Um, so was Schroeder your favorite part? I feel like Schroeder was your favorite part. I'm trying to think of if I... And you also had the hair. You could do the hair. You would be great with the hair. With the hair kind of in my face while sitting at the little piano? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I like that. You have the right hair for Schroeder. I like that. I enjoyed doing Godspell. That's a, a fun show to do. There is a Tom Stoppard one-act play called The Real Inspector Hound. No, uh, and it's usually done on a bill with another Tom Stoppard one-act play called After Magritte, uh, referring okay. to the painter. And I starred in this Tom Stoppard one-act play, and that was a really fun role to play, playing Inspector Simon Gascoigne. <laughs> All right, so my question now is, 
you got really good parts. You were obviously really good at this. What was it that made you go, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore? I mean, I'll just tell you just that exactly when the moment happened, because uh, like I said, I, I really did from high school through college think that I, I was going to be an actor and I was pretty confident, uh, a, a confident actor. And sounds like you got a lot of reassurance on that point. I did. Yeah. And then there was this one Friday night in my first year in New York. And at this time, I was sharing a tiny studio apartment with my ex-girlfriend. I don't mean she's my ex-girlfriend now. I mean, she was my ex-girlfriend at the time (laughs) and had just begun dating my best friend. But when you show up in New York, you don't don't have a lot of choices. If somebody is saying for $250 a month, you could sleep on the futon over there, you say, fine. I was in this tiny studio apartment. It was a Friday night. It was one of those Friday nights everyone's had in New York or probably any big city in the world where you feel like everyone you know has been in part, invited to a party that you haven't been invited to. Yes. I didn't have $2 in my pocket and nothing that could in the apartment that could entertain me worked. The television wasn't working. The stereo uh, wasn't working. The only thing that was working a mutual friend of ours, Lynn, David Handelman, uh-huh. who I went to high school with and who was now in New York beginning his career as a struggling journalist. He had with him his grandfather's semi-automatic typewriter. That's a typewriter with electric keys and a manual return. And he was I believe going I'm out of town with his then girlfriend, who I'm sure you also know, Susan Morrison. Yeah. And he, he didn't want to schlep the typewriter around. He asked me if I'd hang on to it. So all that was in this little studio apartment was that semi-automatic typewriter. And I stuck a piece of paper in it. And one of my survival jobs at that point was an acting job. I was touring with a professional children's theater company where we'd get into a station wagon and a van and we'd go down south for two weeks and and when I say go down south, I don't mean we'd play Atlanta or anything. We'd play Jasper, Alabama, which shows at 10 a.m. noon and 2 p.m. at the local junior high school. But you made $250 a week. But your nights were free since your shows were during the day and we would always be staying in the, in a, the most inexpensive motel we could find that would always be by a highway. And suddenly I felt like I was Sam Shepard. I was down south. It was hot. We were in a seedy motel by a highway. And I stuck a piece of paper in this typewriter and I started writing about this poker game that we got into uh, down there. And I, I was writing dialogue. And suddenly I just felt a confidence that I've never felt with acting, even though, as I said, I was a pretty cocky actor. And you talk about encouragement. I asked a couple of friends of mine to come over in the morning and just read these pages out loud for me. I didn't have the money to go to a Kinko's and get the pages copy or anything. They just passed them back and forth. Mm-hmm. And both of my friends said, hey, you should keep doing this. This is good. If they hadn't said that, if they, if they had said, Ugh, uh, it would have stopped there. But you don't immediately change an identity that you've had for 21 years internally and say, okay, I'm not an actor anymore. I'm a playwright now. I started writing A Few Good Men. Because my sister had graduated from law school and joined the Navy JAG Corps and called me one day and said, you're not going to believe where I'm going tomorrow. The Navy keeps a base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Obviously, this was before it was the world's most famous prison. And I'm going down there and she explained the circumstances. And that's what 
inspired A Few Good Men, but I took a break from writing A Few Good Men to write a one-act play so I could submit it to, uh, there are a handful of one-act play festivals in New York where they produce these one-acts very nicely and they're very well attended and critics come. And I thought, I'll, I'll get my foot in the door with this. And I wrote, it, wrote the one-act play and I cast myself in it. And it was me and Nathan Lane. Oh my God. And one night I was on stage doing this scene with Nathan. And I thought, this guy is really good. Wouldn't it be great if all the actors in my play were this good? And that was the end of me being an actor. Have you written anything for Nathan Lane since? I, I haven't. I would love to. I, I have a back injury due to Nathan Lane, but I haven't written anything for him. <laughs> so you have a memory of him. Um, one other question about acting. Mm-hmm. Do you think having been an actor now that you're a director and previous to that you worked so closely with actors... Does it give you a certain understanding or do you think you're tougher on them as a result of sort of knowing how to do the job? I think it gives me a a certain understanding. I'm able to understand how different actors are, what are they doing to get where they want to go and how can I help them and how I can talk to them. I also get good advice from other actors. remember asking Jeff Daniels before I started directing Chicago 7, I asked Jeff, listen, once the cameras start rolling, how much do you want to hear from the director between takes? He said, during rehearsal, talk to me as much as you want about anything you want. Once we start shooting and you come to me between takes, five words or less. And it was great advice. In rehearsal, you want to get the scene to a point where all you have to do between takes is say, just a little hotter, a little faster, take your time here. Five words or less. Interesting. Really interesting. And also, do you find that you start, when you worked with people a lot on things like West Wing, did you start writing in their rhythms or did you stick to your rhythms? Particularly with the West Wing, which was the show that I had the longest relationship with. Sure. I, you know, once I got, obviously not the pilot, but once I got to know the cast, I was able to kind of put the ball in their strike zone, though they all had very large strike zones. <laughs> but that said, Lynn, I have a very hard time writing like anyone else, or writing like anyone but me. I don't mean writing the way I talk. I don't, as you can tell now and in other conversations we have. I'm not, a, I'm not as articulate as my characters are. I'm not able to speak as quickly as they do. You're very articulate. That's very kind of you to say. But what I'm not able to do, I remember when it was finally time to sit down and write The Social Network, okay? There had been months and months of... I must interject, which as you know, I think is one of the most brilliant scripts of all time. Well, you were incredibly supportive of that film and were a big reason why we were as successful as we were. Uh, And I appreciate that. It was easy. Uh, But at this point, you deserve to be on the poster. (laughs) Well... Uh, Take it because the thing's a work of genius. So, I mean, it was an easy thing to be supportive of because I literally, it's my, it's my go-to. Like whenever I'm depressed, I watch the social network. Oh, that, that's, that's incredible to hear. And beautiful, beautiful. by the way, just in case he's listening, I'm sure Fincher had nothing to do with that. He didn't, nothing. Okay, yeah. When I finally sat down to write it, after months of research, and then you follow that with months of kind of climbing the walls and pacing around and trying to figure out... What story am I telling? What is this going to look like? 
I sat down to write that first scene between Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara. Uh, okay, two college kids on a bad date at a bar. And suddenly I realized these are the youngest characters I've ever written. I have to write the way college kids talk. And so I spent a morning like struggling with a half a page of dialogue. And, and yeah. when it's coming out like a new bottle of ketchup uh, like that, stop. You know you're doing something wrong. And the thing that I was doing wrong was, A, there are millions of college kids and there's no particular way that they talk. They talk millions of different ways. But more important than that, I'm a bad impressionist. I can only write the way I write. And I kind of, it's a lesson I keep learning over and over again. My first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird was terrible because I was trying it's to like wrap the novel in bubble wrap and gently transfer it to the stage without hurting Harper Lee's feelings. I was trying to do a Harper Lee impression. So I just love that you're this person from New York who thought you could be Harper Lee. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. But not only but, you're not, a, not female, which is kind of important with that play, but you and you still did a brilliant job. But I just love that you were trying to channel the voice of a Southern woman. Well, uh, you know what? Okay, uh, Miss Weisenheimer. Um, <laughs> but you, I'll tell you what a brilliant. I, you did a brilliant job. So <laughs> thank you. Anyway, what I did do, what what this guy from New York trying to do a Harvard Lee impersonation did do was I'd go back to the book and I'd start reading her sentences uh, out loud and keep reading them out loud, keep reading them out loud, kind of getting get the rhythm of it. And then I'd replace one of her words with one of my words, just to make sure that I have the rhythm. Then I would take the line and I'd extend it uh, a, a couple of words. And Believe it or not, it was it was an interesting process that I think if, if you were to see or read, well, you have seen the play, but if, if people were to see or read the play, uh, I'm not sure they would feel like it was written by a guy from New York. I think that there is a Harper Lee rhythm in there. No, I, I totally agree. And I think you totally, I, I think you nailed it. And I think of many things you've done, there's been a high degree of difficulty, but I don't think there's a higher degree of difficulty than than doing To Kill a Mockingbird because of all the reasons you just enumerated, which is that it's like everyone's favorite book or they think it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I thought was going to be the hardest part turned out to be the easiest part. I thought the hardest part uh, was going to be Bob Yule because it's it's hard to write a, a monster interestingly, right, where, where it doesn't seem ridiculous. My prediction is that uh, obviously a ton is going to be written about these last few years uh, that we've lived through, mm -hmm. but that you will hardly ever, if ever, see Donald Trump as anything but an offstage or offscreen character. You'll see him on a television uh, giving a, a press conference. And the reason why is he's just not plausible. He is completely implausible. <laughs> also, you can write protagonists, antagonists, antiheroes like Mark Zuckerberg, um, I can write that character as if they're making their case to God why they should be allowed into heaven. I, I, I can defend that character. There's no such thing as an interesting, interesting character who doesn't have a conscience, though. Um, so I thought that Bob Ewell was going to be the hardest thing. It turned out to be the easiest. And the reason why, I went to Breitbart 
and I went to the comment section in Breitbart, and virtually every word out of Bob Ewell's mouth in the play was written by a commenter at Breitbart. It was that that let me feel like, oh, there are real people who are this awful. Um, I don't think Trump is a possibility. That's so fascinating. I don't know how you do it without it seeming like Alec Baldwin or without giving him way too much credit. This is for a, a protagonist has to be put through something. Something has to weigh on them. Nothing weighs on Donald Trump. You can write a person who takes children from their parents and locks them in cages, but it has to, there's got to be a debate within themselves. Uh, it's got to weigh on them. It's got to do something to them. It doesn't do anything about Trump. Thank you for listening to the first three questions from Aaron Sorkin. Tune in for part two to hear the last two questions. Thanks so much for listening to Five Things with Lynn Hirschberg. Special thanks to the Four Seasons in Los Angeles. The podcast is produced by Michael Beckert. The audio engineers are Rich Cerbini and Max Solomon at Hangar Studios. The music is by Robin Shore. Thank you so much to Joy Feely. And thanks to Sarah Moonves for making everything at W possible. Most of all, thank you to Zora. Zora.